we're going to start by reading Romans chapter uh, 3 together. Um, I actually was slated to do part of Hebrews 11 with this, uh, and then just decided, no, we're going to focus on this uh, so that we don't have a protest movement starting in the back with the children's workers. So uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 28, let me read for us. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although uh, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Well, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. By a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Let's pray together. Father, we come here and we thank You for Your Word. It is a treat to gather around it. It is a treat. It is a privilege to see brothers and sisters who have it open. They can read it. Lord, it's a treat to, to be uh, uh, able to read, to look at the words of God together, to know that You have spoken. And so, Father, I pray that You would be kind enough that by Your grace You would allow me as a messenger to treat Your Word with respect before Your people this morning. I pray that Your Word would be heard. And Father, I pray that those hearing it would be attentive and Your Spirit would use Your Word to grow Your church. Father, we stand in an amazing time of history. We stand on the other side of the cross. We stand to worship a resurrected forever King Jesus. And we stand on the other side of the Protestant Reformation. It's an incredible gift. I pray this morning that your kindness to every person here, just in those two facts alone, would be put on display this morning. I pray that the gospel of Christ will be loved and cherished by your people this morning. Form your church, Lord, by the hearing, the preaching, and the love of your word. We ask these things to you, Father, through the name of Christ Jesus, that your spirit would work. Amen. Well, I want you to play imagination with me again. I want you to put your imagination cap on. Here it is. Here's our setting. The year is 1517. That's right. 500 years ago. You live in Germany. You're not the poorest person you know, but you are by no means nobility. You regularly attend church 
Of course, like everybody else, you don't really have a choice on which church you go to. You just go to the church in your area. You don't even call it the Roman Catholic Church, though certainly it is. You just call it the church. There's no other options. Today, there was a man who's high up in the church. He came to town and he was selling something called indulgences. He said that by buying these indulgences, other people could go do God's work and that you would actually get credit for the work that's been done. He never said that this would bring salvation. He just said it would further count on your behalf. You don't really know much about God. You never really assume that you would know much about God. You're not nobility and you aren't a church leader. Like everyone else around you, you know what you've been told about God. And that seems, from what you can gather, to come from three places. First, you've been told that there are certain things about God that come from teachings of a bunch of old dead dudes. The church leaders, they call those councils. They have things to say about God, so you learn from what they say. Also, there's the various things that come from God through the teachings of the Pope himself, just directly. Now that's always seemed a tad bit odd to you. You remember that Pope that when you were a child, he somehow fathered five to ten children, but never got married? And, and then there's Pope Leo X, who now here in 1517, he does some pretty wild things in your view, and he's taken a lot of the church's money for his different war campaigns and fine art and buildings, and the church is kind of going bankrupt. It seems strange to you that he actually can speak the very words of God. Well, aside from the councils and the Pope, you've also been told that the scriptures, they tell you about God, but you don't really know what they say. I mean, they talk about him in church, but they speak him in Latin, and, well, you speak German. Uh, you can't really read one. Number one, you can't read. And number two, even if you could, you don't read Latin. And number three, you couldn't really get access to one because there's really only one and it sits at the church. So you've really never ever heard much about what the scriptures have to say. Well, you don't know a lot about God. You know enough to know that He can't be happy with you. You have constantly heard He is perfect and He demands perfection. You've heard how much higher and transcendent God is than you. You have heard of a horrific judgment that awaits those who die bearing their weight of sin. And this terrifies you. Your life right now is by no means easy. But the thought of spending an eternity and even worse despair than this, you can't imagine. But you know yourself. I mean, you know that you are so far from perfect. You know you've done some shameful things. You want to do anything to be right with God. Well, back to those indulgences. You don't have much money to spend. But if there's something that you would want to spend money on, it would be any chance that you could get and having a better shot at the afterlife. The man selling the indulgences, his name is Tetzel. 
He says that they are so powerful that if one purchased enough of them, it would be enough to wipe away the sin of raping Mary, mother of God. Now, you don't think you've done anything that bad. But you wonder if you should take a little bit of the money that you've saved up for winter and instead go ahead and spend it on an indulgence. Certainly, you don't believe that you can't be served without, saved without the grace of God by no means. It is the grace of God that's actually given you access to the church that would give you access to salvation. And certainly you must have genuine faith. You believe that. But you've heard over and over from your church leaders that your faith has to show forth. Your faith must continue this process with good works and be accompanied by constant confession of sin. Perhaps... Perhaps buying these indulgences are another way that God is offering you grace. You consider all the times you've forgotten to stop and confess. You can't imagine the number of things you've done wrong and you can't even recall doing them. You can't stop thinking of that silly rhyme that guy Tetzel said in the street today. As soon as the gold in the coffer rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. Will you one day be kicking yourself for not being willing to spend a winter cold and hungry instead of years in purgatory. And so here you are. You're confused. You're torn. I mean, it's not new. Everybody is when it comes to the thing of God. Everybody like you, that is, which is most people. You really have no way of knowing. The church really is your only option. And so, what will you do when your only option seems to only care about their own glory and their own increase? This is the desperate world that Martin Luther encountered. It is in this setting. It is for folks just like the one I described. That that 34-year-old monk woke up early on October the 31st of 1517, right at 500 years ago, and took his 95 theses, all written in Latin, and posted them on the church doors at Wittenberg. It was these 95 theses that would be translated into German, the common language, and then printed in mass using the new printing press so that common folks, like the person we just heard about, might read them or at least hear about them. In these writings, a protest movement was born. It began, and the protesters became known as Protestants, or nowadays we just say Protestants. And so here we are, 500 years later, still protesting, and incredibly grateful for the faith and the courage of those who've gone on before us. So as a church, we have decided to take a sermon and to highlight why it is we are grateful for the 500th year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. My aim this morning is to help us understand what life prior to the protest looks like. Hopefully the introduction served that aim. 
And to help us get a better grasp of what were the main points, what was it about Orthodox Christianity that shone forth out of the Reformation? And so we're going to turn our attention to Romans 3. I hope to leave you with five points to better understand the Reformation. These are often called the five solas, where the Latin word sola means only or alone. I thought about leaving them in just the Latin, but that seemed a bit ironic um, to do. So I thought translating them to the common vernacular would be the right approach. So as you turn to Romans 3, we right now as a church are demonstrating the importance of the first sola. Sola Scriptura. Roman Catholicism does not deny the importance of Scripture. Let me say that again. Roman Catholicism does not deny the importance of Scripture. But it must deny the ideal of Scripture alone, of sola scriptura. As our friend we met in the introduction explained, Scripture is considered as on par with church tradition, is handed down by the councils, and with papal authority as spoken by the Pope. By God's grace, the Reformation began well before Luther. Oh, it traces its origin all the way back to the 1320s to a brilliant Oxford-trained Englishman by the name of John Wycliffe. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. This brilliant Englishman was an expert at both. He translated the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English. About 50 years later, after Wycliffe, there was a guy, a Czechman, named Jan Hus, sometimes he's called the uh, John Hus, his name's Jan Hus, he's a Czechman, and he was forever changed by the writings of Wycliffe. He began, because of what Wycliffe taught him, to trust in the Scriptures and the tr Scriptures alone. Now, Hus, that's the Czech for goose. When he began to teach and his writings became popular, the church condemned him and burned him at the stake. If you've ever heard the phrase, his goose is cooked, uh, now you know exactly where it came from. But right before he died, it's said that Jan Hus looked up, and it is said that he said this, They will roast a goose today, but after a hundred years, they will hear a swan sing, and him they will endure. Jan Hus was executed in 1415. And guess who became vicar of the churches in Wittenberg in 1515, exactly a hundred years later? That's right, Martin Luther. And to this day, he is considered the swan of the Reformation. And in fact, if you go into many Lutheran congregations, you will actually find on their pulpit a swan uh, uh, inscribed in it. 
All the Reformation comes down to the first sola, sola scriptura, scripture alone. As Luther stood on trial where he would soon be excommunicated and many believed he would actually be executed if he didn't recant his teachings, he refused to recant with this statement. I think I printed it for you. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves, I am bound to the Scriptures, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Friends, friends, this doctrine, it's under heavy assault even today. It will always and has always been assaulted all the way back to those years ago when our first parents heard these words from the evil one. Did God really say? It was an assault on Scripture alone. It's under assault in our churches across the world. It's under assault in churches in our land as we are so tempted to rely on so many other sources of knowledge and revelation, but the Bible and the Bible alone. It is on assault in my life and in your lives as we make decisions daily to read it, to study it, to know it. We will never know how many men were burned, hanged, bludgeoned to death, starved and sick in prison, so that we may have a Bible in our own language. O Christian, let us not let their blood be vainly spilt blood. Let us pick it up and read it. So we believe in sola scriptura. And as we open up that scriptura, those scriptures to Romans 3, look with me at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Paul explains that being considered right before God comes, this is key, apart from the law. That is, all those ways of living that God laid out in the Old Testament. He doesn't discount the law as valuable, but he's saying that being declared right before God will happen apart from it. That's key. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. How can one be declared right before God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe in Jesus, who put their faith in Jesus, it is by their faith, by itself, apart from any work that allows them to be declared right before God. Our friend who, consi who we considered an introduction 
Didn't think that his faith was unimportant. No, far from it. He believes that faith is a key. He just thinks that he's got to add to it so that his faith becomes good enough to warrant him being considered right before God. But that is not what Paul teaches. Paul teaches that we are declared right before God apart from the law. Now look down with me at verse 27. It gets really explicit to this point. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Boasting is excluded because there's nothing to boast about. (laughs) There are no works added to faith. No indulgence purchase will help your faith as as you've already been declared righteous before God. How much water can you add to a full cup of water? None. Our faith is all that we need to be declared righteous before God. Paul keeps going. By what kind of law? By what kind of works? No, but by the law of faith. Paul doesn't mean here Old Testament law. It gets a little confusing there because he uses law and then he uses law. I wish we had like a capital L and a lowercase l. He means something like principle. So he's saying here, what is the principle that we're declared righteous with? He's saying it's not a principle of works. It's a principle of faith. We are declared righteous by a principle of faith. And then he goes even further. Look at 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It can't be more explicit than this. We are declared right before God by faith apart from the works of the law. This is faith alone. This is the second sola. Sola fide. Faith alone. I love what Luther wrote when considering this verse. He said, Romans 3.28, For in this verse... He, that's Paul, is dealing with the main point of Christian doctrine. Namely, that we are justified by faith in Christ without any works of the law. Paul excludes all works so completely as to say that the works of the law, though it is God's law and word, do not aid us in justification, which must mean faith alone justifies Whoever would speak plainly and clearly about this rejection of works will have to say faith alone justifies and not works. Now, I didn't give you the full quote. It gets better at the beginning when he calls them who disagree with him all a bunch of blockheads, um, which in Luther's language, that's pretty tame. Uh, so that actually wouldn't be nearly as rough. To the folks of Luther's day, to the folks... He was pastoring to. Wondering if they should buy an indulgence in order to better their standing with God. Luther answered, faith alone. You don't need to buy an indulgence any more than you need to add to a full container. Now I intentionally skip verses 23 and 25 because they hold for us two of the other solas. So let's go back and quickly cover verses 23 and through 25. Or actually back all the way up to uh, 22. The end of 22 it says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One's race or class or nationality 
It's irrelevant. Since every person has utterly failed to live perfect as God has required, we are all diagnosed as guilty. So what is our hope of standing rightly before God? Verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift. How does one get the declaration of righteousness? By the grace of God as a gift. That's it. It is handed to us as a free gift. It's the third sola. Sola gratia. Or grace alone. So we heard from our friend earlier, he believed in the, necess- the necessity of grace for salvation, but he also believed that grace had to be accompanied by other means, such as sacraments, or the baptism, Lord's Supper, and other ways to cooperate with God's gift. Not so. So how do these fit together, this grace alone and this faith alone? Who is it who is declared righteous by God? It is those who have faith. And how does one get that faith? They receive it as a gift. To the discouraged souls of Luther's day, he offered the wonderful news that God's grace alone is enough to bring full salvation. The idea of buying something that is already given away is as foolish as it is arrogant. Scripture alone. Faith alone. Grace alone. Then, let's look at 24 and 25. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This faith has an object. I don't have time to go off on this, but if you hear typical secular talk about faith, everybody's got faith. you got to have faith in something, right? We all have faith. Christian faith isn't a blind faith. It's faith with eyes wide open. It's faith that has an object. It has an end point that it gazes at. That object is a person. It's one person. It is Jesus Christ. We are declared righteous before God, not through anything that we do, but through the finished work of Christ. That's the message of Hebrews that we just walked through. Jesus is enough. God put forward Jesus as the propitiation, as the appeasement, the atonement, the satisfier, all by His horrible murder on the cross and by His perfect life prior to. Faith that is given as a gift, looks to Jesus Christ as the sole person who can bring us to God. Paul shows us how this is even true for those before Jesus walked the earth. This is so interesting in Paul's argument. He goes back and says, well, what about, he just sees it coming. Well, what about the people who lived before Jesus walked the earth? Okay, I'll deal with it. Look look with me. 
This, end of 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God, when Jesus landed on the earth, Mary would probably appreciate me saying was birthed uh, on the earth. There had already been a bunch of sins that God had passed over. He passed over Jacob's punkish ways. He passed over Moses' impatience, Samson's foolishness, Solomon's wild heart, Elijah's cowardice, and the list goes on. But he could only do that temporarily. He did that until Jesus Christ who is promised that the heir of Abraham is the son of David, would come and pay for those sins. Those wayward souls of the Old Testament are saved just like our wayward souls are saved today. They were given faith, a faith that is alone in the completed work of Christ alone. I said earlier that sola scriptura might be the most important of the five solas. I said almost because it stands right up next against sola Christus in Christ alone. Because the work of Christ is what offers us right standing. It's what offers us righteousness. And it is done, praise God, without the need of any other human priest, whether alive or any saint dead, it is done by Christ alone. And finally, in verses 25 through 26, we see the final of the five solas. Notice who gets credit. This same 20, verse 25 and 26 for the work that's done. Notice whose fame is on the line here. This was to show God's righteousness. This was to show. God's righteousness because in His forbearance it was to show His righteousness so that He so that He might be the just and justifier. Who gets credit for all the work? God alone. No saint. Not Mary the mother of Jesus. Not Peter. Not any pope. It is God alone who gets glory. The final sola is solia deo gloria. Glory to God alone. These are the five solas. And hopefully you've seen they come right out of Scripture. These are dear truths. These five solas. They're sweet truths. And they didn't come cheap. They came with a lot of sacrifice from a lot of men and women who saw that there is more to life than meets their eyes. We will never know the number of folks who suffered to give us these truths, who died to stand in protest, to give us the rich heritage that we hold dear. I'll put together just a couple to give you an example. John Wycliffe was so hated by Rome they dug up his bones and burned the bones. I think somebody should go to counseling. Jan Hus was stripped naked, chained, and burned at the stake. Jerome Savonarola was tortured and burned. 
Martin Luther was excommunicated and defamed. Yorick Zwingli died on a, as a chaplain on a battlefield as he was ministering to Protestant soldiers being attacked by a Catholic army. Thomas Cranmer, William Tyndall, Patrick Hamilton, all burned alive. And so also William Hunter. There are so many other names who suffered so much. When I consider their lives, when I consider what they have helped secure for us, I'm humbled. And I thank God. I think back of that passage that Brother or Pastor Mark preached for us out of Hebrews 11, verse 39 through 40. And talks about the incredible blessing of living on the other side of the cross of Christ. Remember it says this, Hebrews 11, verse 39 and 40. In all these, though condemned through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Talking about all the prophets and leaders of old. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should be not be made perfect. We are told that the prophets... That the, the various leaders of Israel, of early Israel, never received on this side of heaven what was promised. Why? Because something better remained for us who live to worship the risen Christ. They will be made perfect when we are made perfect. How blessed are we to live on the other side of the resurrection. But he goes far, gets far better than that. We're, how blessed are we to live on the other side of the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church had been corrupted by people who were trying to situate the spiritual and the eternal purely within the material and the temporal. The Reformers protested. We don't need your additions. We trust that by God's grace alone, He will use Scripture alone to point us to Christ alone and give us a faith that on its own will make us right before God. And when this happens, we should be unable to take an ounce of logical credit for it. All glory will be to God alone. And so I titled the sermon, Always Protesting, Always Reforming. We must always, always be reforming in our own lives, in our own churches, in our own denominations. Why? Because Satan knows. He knows he cannot steal anything away from those who already have all they need. So what does he do? His only option is to tempt us to add something to it in hopes that we will confuse the perfect for the good and then the good for the neutral. And then it goes on. In our own lives, in our own hearts, this is as simple as substituting reading and studying the Scriptures for anything else. Judging our standing with God based on our performance. Living with anything aside from utter humility that recognizes everything I am is by God's grace alone. But it's tempting. It's dangerous. 
Be a protester to your own flesh and heart and stand to say, it is not by me at all. It is by God's grace alone in Christ alone. And we must consistently protest even in our own churches and in our own denominations. We are constantly in danger of adding stuff. We feel helpless because we don't really have control over how God's grace moves. So we want to grab control and grab the reins. But let me offer this suggestion. Can we be content to offer nothing less, nothing less than the Scriptures and the Gospel of Christ as a church? That's enough to keep us studying together constantly, reading together, praying together constantly. It's enough to keep our feet busy and aching from finding others who don't believe in the love of Jesus to share the love of Jesus and point them to the risen Christ. But let us, so let us be content to offer nothing less than the Scriptures and the Gospel of Christ. But let us commit to one another. We will never offer anything more than the Scriptures and the Gospel of Christ. When the questions ask, well, what do we have to offer as a church that makes us stand out? If the answer is ever anything more than the Scriptures and the Gospel of Christ, I pray we answer together, we have nothing else to offer. If we ever build on anything but those, we've attracted the wrong people by the wrong means, for the wrong purpose, and to the wrong gospel. But Tim, who's going to want to come to church who only has the Scriptures and the Gospel of Christ? Nobody. Nobody. Nobody wants to sit at a church that has nothing but the Scriptures and the Gospel of Christ. Nobody wants to give their money to that. Nobody wants to gather a bunch of people who are so different than them. Some old, some young. Some people who like tomatoes and some people who are smart and think they're disgusting. Nobody wants to do it. Some people who like to sing really old music. and some, No, why, why bother? Nobody is going to want to be at a church that can only offer the Scriptures in the Gospel of Christ. Unless God draws them. Unless He does a work in their heart by the grace of God alone and draws them to Christ and they don't give a rip about any of the rest of the stuff. Then you got yourself a Protestant church. Let us be content, content to keep it as simple is letting all things be done by the grace of God alone, through the Scriptures alone, pointing to Christ alone, and giving us right standing to God through faith that's given to us as a gift alone. And I promise you, glory will go to God 
and to God alone. Let's pray.